0: Let me Google that! On April 20th, 2010, an oil rig owned by Transocean and leased and principally operated by British Petroleum, or BP, exploded and resulted in the largest marine oil spill in history. The worst in U.S. history, by a long shot. Some 52 miles off the coast of Louisiana, drilling in the Macondo Prospect in the Gulf of Mexico, the Deepwater Horizon rig, at the time of the disaster, had been drilling for 74 days, creating a well approximately 18,360 feet below sea level. Now, oil rigs use a combination of diesel engines and generators powered by electricity to drill down into the earth to get crude oil, or fossil fuels, which formed from decaying organisms in the oxygenless sediment that makes up the layers of the Earth. This process is largely the result of heat and high pressure, which yields crude oil and natural gas, which we then use to make and power things above ground. You probably hear a lot about our dependence on oil, namely that it's bad, and the reasons for this are twofold. For one, it is not a clean power source, so using it is problematic for our environment. And two, it is not a renewable resource. In other words, there's only so much oil in the world that we could drill, and you better believe that we have used up most of it. And we get it by using these big-ass oil rigs. Deepwater Horizon was hella one of those rigs. It was built in 2001 by Hyundai Heavy Industries, the largest shipbuilding company in the world, which is based in South Korea, and it was leased to BP until 2013. In 2009, it drilled the deepest well in the industry's history at a vertical depth of 35,050 feet. Like other rigs of its caliber, Deepwater Horizon did have a highly trained crew to operate it and plenty of safety features. As you might imagine, working on a giant semi-submersible machine some 5,000 miles off the shore that's full of highly flammable substances is pretty risky business. Though in this day and age, a lot of the monitoring can be done remotely. Real-time data on drilling operations are recorded in a headquarters in Houston, which can then let engineers on the rig know what's going on. Other systems that monitor things like pressure are outfitted with safety features like auto shutoffs that should be able to detect potential danger, like a failure of some sort, and then shut that shit down before anyone gets hurt. In April of 2010, Deepwater Horizon had been drilling offshore for a decade, but the rigs are designed to have Somewhere between 15, 20, if not 25 year long lives. And how long it lasts comes down to a lot of factors that would be true of the types of things that you use oil to power. So how well was the machine built in the first place? And also, how well have you been able to maintain it? A lot of the crew members on the oil rigs that are in the Gulf of Mexico are really there to keep the rig operational and safe. There were 126 crew members aboard the rig on the night of April 20th, 2010. Many of them had been there for weeks, if not months, as the rig was nearing the end of a successful round of plundering the depths of the Macondo well, which, just before 10 p.m., decided to take its revenge. High-pressure gas, methane, surged through the drilling portion of the rig and, as you might suspect, caught fire, as flammable gas does. This fire caused an explosion, now rigs like deepwater are built to withstand or at least be able to somewhat cope with this type of worst case scenario. Obviously, no one wants it to happen, but when you're playing with all these hazardous materials, the financial stakes are high, so you prepare for the worse. Those who were on the rig, certainly those who built it would have liked to have think would have probably liked to have thought that Deepwater Horizon was prepared. As it turned out, though, the rig had suffered a fatal flaw. In the moments after the explosion, there was a decidedly chaotic response on the rig as crew members tried to save themselves and each other. Of the 126 who were aboard, 94 of them were ultimately rescued, though many had suffered pretty serious injuries. Eleven crew members were never found, and many had desperately leapt from the platform into the darkening water below. It was not dark because it was the middle of the night, but rather because millions of barrels of oil were leaking into the ocean. And it would continue to do so throughout the next day and night until the rig sank, and then for 87 days after, which is how long the well went uncapped. The disaster was precisely the type that the rig's crew had supposedly been having drills for, the types of mandatory trainings that companies would want you to have. The safety measures and emergency response systems built into the framework should have been pretty good, yet somehow the disaster had still happened. The first question, of course, was why, and then how. From here, the Deepwater Horizon disaster really forks into two stories, overlapping but also somewhat divided. The investigation into why the rig exploded and the story of the cleanup effort and lasting environmental and economic impact that the oil spill ultimately had. To fully appreciate the devastation, we have to first kind of tee up the findings from various investigations, which involved testimony from the surviving crew members that revealed the how and the why that things fell apart on the rake that night. As with many industrial disasters that came before it and those that have happened since, there was a major breakdown in communication, which was ultimately to blame at least in part for what happened. But there was also a fault to be found physically. It turned out that a recently installed core, which had been intended to seal the well until they wanted to drill again, was structurally too weak. The contractor that had been used by BP to put the core in had been used by them before and experienced problems similar with these cores beforehand, basically that they had not been built strong enough to withstand the buildup of gas in the well. And this was believed to be at least in part due to the fact that the concrete mixture they used contained nitrogen gas, which gave them less structural integrity but made the cement cure faster. So that was problem number one. But the next question was why wasn't the ultimate outcome actively defended against? Was it that there was no warning or that the warnings weren't heeded? After extensive interviews with the crew, it seemed that while there were plans and drills for large scale disasters like explosions, they had not been routinely completed. While there were plenty of smaller scale drills, those were really only helpful in preparing for more minor issues. So in truth, the crew had really not been all that well prepared for the cascade of fires and power outages that followed the explosion. They also reported being overwhelmed by the complexity of the systems meant to communicate during such a disaster, which confused and paralyzed them into delayed or inaction. And according to The New York Times report, one system was controlled by as many as 30 different buttons. The instructions or guidelines also confused even the most experienced of the crew members. The details were there, but there was no solid definition of what constituted an emergency response and when it ought to be launched. It also cautioned people against overreacting and flying into a panic. But if an oil rig is on fire and crude oil is leaking into the Gulf of Mexico, that seems worthy of a rapid response, if not a healthy dose of panic. Although the extent of the leak wasn't even known at the time. It wouldn't be until the rig sunk two days later on April 22nd, at which time an oil slick bubbled up from beneath the site. For the next 87 days, somewhere around 4.9 million barrels of oil leaked out, spilling into the ocean and spreading some 22 miles into an enormous plume. Oil spills had, of course, happened before, though not of this caliber. And even if it had been, oil spills are dependent on a lot of other environmental factors when it comes to getting them under control and cleaned up. Tides, wildlife, wind, the water's temperature, Basically, therefore, every oil spill has to be approached case by case, which makes it tricky. But scale up the size to what happened after Deepwater Horizon, and it begins to seem almost insurmountable. No matter where or how much, cleanup starts out with kind of the same strategies. There are physical barriers called skimmers, which can be used to try to contain the spread. If you've ever put oil in water while you're cooking something, then you know that oil tends to coat the surface of the water and spread, but doesn't necessarily go too deep. So the physical surface barriers can help to contain it. From there, though, the oil has to be sopped up somehow. And the priority is often placed first, On places it's reached and coated that are near or at the coast, things like marshes and other animal habitats. And if you've ever seen those harrowing images of oil coated birds, then you can understand why. Some strategies for cleanup involve sorbents, which absorb the oil like a sponge. Now, these can be made from all kinds of things hay, sawdust, clay and volcanic ash, sand, and polyurethane. The type of oil and the conditions around the spill ultimately determine what type of sorbent is needed, and in the case of deep water, they actually needed many different kinds there are also dispersants which takes the hydrophobic nature of oil and exploits it somewhat basically to break up the oil into particles small enough to be mixed into the water where it can then evaporate or be consumed by bacteria after the deep water horizon spill 1.4 million gallons were sprayed on the ocean in the gulf next problem is dispersants and solvents come with their own side effects even as cleanup teams controlled the oil, they were still harming the ecosystem. The most immediate and obvious impact was all of the dead sea life that came to the surface in the days after the spill. Fish began to wash up on the beaches and there were dolphins dying in droves. Seabirds, if they didn't die right away, suffered from the effect of oil on their wings and their inability to fly for months to come. All of this also had lasting ramifications on the fishing industry, which suddenly had a lot less shrimp and tuna. And even for years after, some of the shrimp that they were able to fish for when they could go back to fishing in the Gulf turned out to be mutated or somehow oddly deformed, believed to be a result of the oil spill. So cleanup patrols that had been headed up by the EPA and the Coast Guard ultimately had petered out by 2014, but the long-term impact had certainly been felt. Both the environmental and economic impact of the spill was intense, leaving somewhere around 10,000 people unemployed. And then, of course, there were also people who just weren't traveling to these regions because the beaches had been closed, so the tourism industry suffered too. At the time, President Obama demanded that BP create a $20 billion compensation fund, but it was largely depleted by 2013 and hadn't had enough regulatory oversight to make sure that the people who actually had suffered were getting it because the government was naturally abusing it. BP was ultimately held responsible, but they immediately turned and pointed fingers at Transocean and Halliburton the contractor who had made the well core that hadn't stood up to the natural gas. By this point, the investigation really wanted someone to be held responsible not just for what had happened to the Deepwater Horizon crew and their families, but the cleanup crews who had also begun to experience health problems as a result of the cleanup efforts. Even if it wasn't necessarily always down to the oils and chemicals themselves having some kind of toxic effect, the work itself was grueling and dangerous and pushed people easily to the brink of exhaustion and injury. In the aftermath, studies also found that there had been health effects on the Gulf Shore residents, particularly in children. And in these regions where they were still reeling from Hurricane Katrina, the immediate and lasting impact that the spill had on the region in terms of environment and long-term health problems and the economy was really kind of like kicking you when you're down type of thing. It's something that arguably that region has still not recovered from even nearly a decade later. In the end, nobody went to prison over the spill, though not because there had not been efforts to try to send them there. The investigations and trials were marred by obstruction of justice and the kind of shady shit that you'd expect from the oil industry. But it was clear that people were at least aware that this was happening, including the federal government, which filed suits against companies and individuals who had been involved. In the end, BP pled guilty to 11 felony counts, including manslaughter because of the 11 people who had died, and paid a $4 billion fine. Transocean pled guilty to a misdemeanor charge and paid a $1.4 billion fine. Recent estimates put BP's ultimate expenses in terms of cleaning up or paying fines or paying compensation somewhere around $65 billion. But when you think about the lasting economic and environmental impact and what that had cost so many people, it really makes you wonder if you can put a price on disaster. And it certainly kind of puts into perspective the old adage of, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure.